she made me do the dishes. <laughs> oh, your poor little mommy made you do the big fat dishes. Hey, you want a s'more? S'more what? No, no, you want a s'more. I haven't had anything yet. So how can I have some more of nothing? Shut up! You're killing me, Smalls. All right, who cut one? Accepted social pundency, if you will, and yeah, we know that's not really a word, defines the baby boomer generation as those born during the great economic and population explosion in the American post-World War II years, from 1946 to roughly 1964. The same accepted social pundency, however, kind of overlaps and defines Generation X, or the Gen Xers to their closest friends, As those born from that same early 1960s through the 1980s, realistically and more accurately, however, there was always another generation between the two: the children of the bona fide baby boomers and the aunts, uncles, and older brothers and sisters of said Gen Xers. Never given an official designation, this unlabeled generation—mine, Jim's, and many others—always seemed to revel in their non-pigeonholedness, as they were never really at home or comfortable with either aforementioned group. They, the first analog to digital transitional generation, who, unlike the boomers, grew up with TV having always been there, but they also being the technological guinea pigs, who witnessed the Neil Armstrong-like vinyl to CD years. As well as the corresponding origins of home video, from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray and beyond, and the rise of the home computer, from Radio Shack's TRS-80 to today's super-powerful Macs, PCs, and even smartphones. As with every generation, that in-between analog to digital one saw its inner angst realized in its popular arts. Our parents had the very distinct fight-the-power voices of Jack Kerouac, Gloria Steinem, Bobby Seale. And in film, those of Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Melvin Van Peebles. But having grown up with the traditional boomer values of the Brady Bunch and the Partridge Family, as well as the cynical reality of Vietnam and Watergate and the Gulf War, the analog to digital generation found itself in this Jekyll and Hyde position of expressing at the same time both its desire for and disdain of the old school ways, and. Just as in the popular cinema of the 1970s, wherein tried and true pulp tropisms like the western, the gangster yarn, love story saw themselves upended in fresh and original ways, so too would the cinematic arts of the digital generation follow suit in the 1990s, with two of its most unique and surprisingly bankable writer and filmmakers being Shane Black and David Mickey Evans. While Black would take the '40s, '50s era pulpish milieu of the police procedural and noir thrillers, then eviscerate and reassemble them into the postmodern *Lethal Weapon*, *The Long Kiss Goodnight*, *The Last Boy Scout*, and others, screenwriter-director David Mickey Evans would, beginning in the 1990s, likewise reconstruct the ever-popular coming-of-age family film paradigm. By this time, the genre wearing out its welcome after a decade of saccharine Cosby Show, Who's the Boss, The Wonder Years, and other representations. Beginning with his screenplay to 1992's Radio Flyer, directed by Richard Donner, and 1993's The Sandlot, both written and directed by David himself, both the light and dark sides of childhood to adulthood would be blatantly, powerfully, heartbreakingly, and at the same time hilariously. Depicted on screen for the first time since the legendary Francois Truffaut films of the 1960s, the popular and critical successes of DME's films would burst open the mainstream doors to a new genre of more gritty and honest, while at the same time still magical, 
family titles over the ensuing decades from other filmmakers. Mrs. Doubtfire, the remakes of The Secret Garden and A Little Princess, Sathura, and even 1995's Casper the Friendly Ghost now finding license to eschew the broad comedy of, say, Home Alone, in favor of examinations of divorce, absentee parents, the loss of loved ones, and more, in an intelligent and heartfelt, kid-friendly format appealing to both contemporary children and their parents, who now had similar license to remember their own childhoods as they were, rather than as with Brady Bunch-type representations, as they perhaps had once wished they'd been. In the, what now, Craig, two or three years since we started podcasting, I don't think either of us can remember a conversation as intimately and simultaneously candid, hilarious, heartbreaking, and artistically enlightening as our sit-down with writer and director David Mickey Evans. And we cover it all, discussing how literally within a few days he went from aspiring writer with no bucks in his pockets to taking one-on-one sit-down meetings with Hollywood bigwigs such as Richard Donner and John Peters. We delve into his integration of the sports inspirational genre into the warped and wept of his films, The Sandlot, the final season, and his upcoming true life tale of high school football coach Ed Thomas lifting the Little League and Pop Warner sports worlds from the cliched cuteness of Rookie of the Year, The Mighty Ducks, and Angels in the Outfield into the more multi-layered coming-of-age versions of, say, Field of Dreams, The Natural, and Bull Durham. See? And you thought the Sandlot was just about a bunch of kids and a great big dog named the Beast, didn't you? Uh-uh. Not on this one. I'm Craig Jameson. And I'm Jim Delaney. And welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak, Sneaking Into the Sandlot with David Mickey Evans. did besides baseball, going to the pool was what he tolerated best. Even though none of us had ever seen a Playboy magazine, which we constantly lied about, we figured going to the pool was the next best thing to be in there. I remember you. Oh, sexy. It wasn't really the pool honeys like we said, because if any one of them had come up to any one of us, we could just peed our pants. We all went because, well, because Wendy Peppercorn was the lifeguard. Yes, she does. She knows exactly what she's doing. And one day, it became too much for Michael Squints Polidorus. I can't take this no more! (laughs) Squints' ultimate solution to his uh, Wendy Pfeffercorn's conundrum uh, is uh, certainly my favorite scene in 1993's The Sandlot. I know most people go with, you're killing me, Smalls. And there are t-shirts and GIFs and everything with that quote on them. 
but the narrator's deadpan delivery in reference to Squint's uh, actions uh, certainly just cracks me up to this day. I don't know, maybe because it kind of brings back memories of my own first kiss. Give you a little hint. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, many years ago. Oh, and by the way, fans who have seen and know and love The Sandlot, and there are many, we'll get into that later as well, also know that the film's narrator is none other than its writer and director. Tonight's guest, David Mickey Evans. I don't think we're giving away any trade secrets when we acknowledge that we've interviewed David in advance of this broadcast. And as such, I gotta say that, yeah, it's nice when you get to chat with folks who've, whose craft you've admired for years. But it's just so damn cool when you discover first and foremost that they're diehard movie fans like yourself and with a similar twisted sense of humor and I mean topics ranging from Carl Jung to Francois Truffaut to the coolness of Powers Booth to James Bond and The Force Awakens you know you've landed in good company in addition to our chat with David we're honored to have this evening as our musical guest Swiss composer and world-renowned cellist Martin Tillman A virtuoso of acoustic and electric cello, Martin is today one of the most respected and sought-after instrumentalists on the contemporary scene. His impressively eclectic resume, including performances at the Montreux Jazz Festival and with the L.A. Philharmonic, he's performed at Elton John's 60th birthday Madison Square Garden Bash, as well as with Beck, Sting, and the legendary T-Bone Burnett, and he's been composer Hans Zimmer's principal cellist and or soloist on scores as varied as Black Hawk Down, Hannibal, The Da Vinci Code, Mission Impossible 2, The Pirates of the Caribbean, Dark Knight franchises, and more. We've also got in their third appearance with us on the movie sneak, the podcast troupe, We Found Microphones. They this time delving into Marvel Netflix popular series, Jessica Jones. So, without further ado, let's get this bad boy in gear. Marvel. I don't know if you people at home can understand, but I'm flipping a book, like the comic book He's stuff. doing the Marvel, the Marvel intro. I'll do it again. Oh, it's even funnier when you're actually doing it. This Marvel. is... <laughs> this is We this Found This isn't Marvel, by the way. <laughs> this is We Found Microphones, uh, your friendly neighborhood... Podcast, podcast, yeah. college, college students. <laughs> we are nailing this. That was a good idea. <laughs> Tonight okay. we, or today, depending on when you're listening to this, we are reviewing Jessica Jones. Ooh. Jessica Jones. You tossed a man twice your size across the ball with one hand. Adrenaline kicked in. Does anyone else know about your abilities? There's one other out there. His ability was to make people do whatever he wants. Step forward. You like mind control? Jessica. You want to do it. You know you do. Exactly. Mind control. You are a hard-drinking, short-fused mess of a woman. Jessica, let's start now. I don't know how you handle it. It's called whiskey. Jessica Jones is the second uh, series by Marvel on Netflix for their Defenders saga, which is in the same cinematic universe as all of the Avengers movies and such. First one being Daredevil. This one, Jessica Jones. 
Uh, I've seen the entire thing. I'm um, up I'm to t- what am I? Yeah, what are you up three, to? Three, four, something like that. Three, four. I'm ten episodes in. They're very I'm, long. Episodes. I'm deep. Yeah, it's, long, long it's an hour long. Show. It's an hour long episodes. Show. I've only seen the pilot. I'm sorry, guys. All right, which <laughs> brings hey, us hey, to hey, our hey, first. That's point. a lot of story. Well, that's, that's a lot of story. But that's our it first was. point. Though, like, I think that's an important point yeah. of the show. Yes, let's let's start with that. The pilot sucks. Yeah, it's okay because I was wondering. The pilot is the most cliche. I'm a private eye who drinks a lot. It gets oh, so all much the shots better. of her like waking up with like an empty oh, glass yeah, in her hand. Yeah. It's just so. I think overdone. one of the first lines was like, <sighs> "The city that never sleeps, but it sure sleeps around a lot." Oh, I was yeah, like, yeah, "No, yeah. what am I watching? Horrible, What's this? Horrible that that and the the voiceover just kind of makes it so much worse. <laughs> they drop the voiceover completely. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's gone. Oh yeah. wow, okay. It, it really Good falls call. off the face now, of the planet. The after. reason to watch the show is for the villain who is the purple man for any comic book fans out there, and one of my personal favorite villains who has mind control. So whatever he says, you have to do, which is the coolest thing in the show. They do a lot with it. They actually do. Like, you think that bit would get old. We like, do what I say, and then you do it. But, like, he he uses it. It's, it's like, creative. It's it's such creative ways that they use it. Like, it's really fantastic. And going off of Daredevil, which had one of the best villains of any show, I think, the Kingpin, the purple man is... So cool, like it's such a cool villain. Like there are points where I actually feel really bad for him, and I'm like, I hope he wins in the end. And <laughs> then he does something really horrible, and you're like, Oh like, yeah, uh, he's the well, bad guy. Right, all right, nice, terrible. Nice for me about the pilot, which I thought was was something that did suck me in, mm-hmm. was how scared she was. Yeah, oh, the, like that always gets me with mm-hmm. superhero stuff. When like you see the like this the hero, the fear, you're like oh man, I should be. Really afraid I of this person, of you know, person, and that's yeah. like psychologically does so much more than if they're just big or scary or whatever yeah, it is. Totally. Um, so the show, I mean, the show definitely picks up. Uh, I'm so next... I'm really into it now. Like yeah, a yeah. plus. Like, as oh, soon yeah, as the sure. villains, wow. you see what he can do. You go, da- oh, and it does not pull any punches. This is the darkest thing Marvel's ever done. There are sex Darker... scenes every single episode. Yeah. <laughs> well. That's not necessarily dark. It's definitely no, I'm pushing gonna, the I'm envelope. Bring up like, the dark stuff. Okay, now. okay. <laughs> there are themes that, like, you would watch, like, and like The Sopranos, and you go, "That's pretty damn dark." I'm not gonna give away spoilers. Mm-hmm. Damn, I'm just gonna say the pill they give the oh, girl. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Daredevil. Like, lest lest we not forget, Head Spike guy and Daredevil when you know he like. Oh yeah. Like, yeah, you yeah. fall. He like hits, <clears throat> face plants a like fence. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So there's, I, I there's do think moments. Jennifer Jones. There's yeah, moments. it's pretty intense. That actually. But you're only two yeah. episodes yeah. in. I'm only two episodes in. It gets in. W- okay. so dark. It's. You know, I like the show better than Daredevil. I'm going to say it right wow. now. I like it better than Daredevil because I it feels don't. it feels real. It feels a lot more real than Daredevil does. And you know, it's just it's just it's gritty. It's like there's not. It's, I don't think you it's forget. Shot as well, you forget though. sometimes. You forget sometimes that she's a superhero. Like you forget. Oh, sometimes absolutely. Because she's such like a person. So like there's like so much depth to her. I, and I feel like there's a lot more. I really don't think it's shot as well as Daredevil. Though. I, don't I don't think, think it's I shot like as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the cinematography. I don't think a it's lot shot of times as well. There's bad shots. Yeah, like, oh, I agree with you. Shot. I agree with you. But the story is so much better, in my opinion. It really is. Like, there's so much more to every single character, everyone around her, who's got so much more to them, and that's, that's what fair. I feel like All is right. better. We got ten seconds left. Bottom line, I really liked it. You should watch it. You should watch it. Get through the first episode and get into it. Woo! Thanks, guys. Dig a lot more of We Found Microphones on their SoundCloud and YouTube channels. Coming up next, our musical guest, Martin Tillman, prepare to be blown away, and our sit-down with Radio Flyer, The Sandlot, writer-director, David Mickey Evans. Stay with us here at the Movie Sneak. We'll be right back.
Sneak is very honored to introduce internationally renowned composer and cellist Martin Tillman with Odessa.
Wow. If that tune sounds familiar to some of you, that's because, taken from Martin's year 2000 album, Eastern Twin, director Michael Mann was so enamored of it that he used it and uh, another cut from the album in the soundtrack to his 2001 film, Ali. A little more on that uh, in our uh, interview with Martin later in the show. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I did not. Yes, you did. Hey, 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 hey. What's the problem? Dad, he promised to let me play with it. And now he says he didn't, and he won't. Did you? Did I what? Did you promise? Well, yeah, but no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. You can't just say, I promise, and then forget about it. I promise are the most important words you'll ever say. Why? Because it only takes a second to say I promise, but the commitment can last the rest of your life. You guys, remember I told you guys about your your Uncle Bobby and me when we were just kids? Well, yeah, of course. Well, I didn't tell you the whole story because... Well, I left out a bunch of stuff because I just figured you guys were too young, but... Well, I guess now is as good a time as any. But I want you to remember something. History is all in the mind of the teller. Truth is all in the telling. So, uh, David, thank you for joining us here on the Movie Sneak. Oh, God, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it very much. It's a great pleasure. And um, So how are we uh, uh, with language on your guys' podcast? Oh, actually, you can say whatever the fuck you want to say. Much. Okay. Fucking okay. Here we go. Okay. You can here usually you hear some, some bourbon and ice clinking from both of us. Oh, I just opened a nice Pinot Newer. So I'm happy. Oh, nice. thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, just in the past week, I've been rewatching some of your films. Rewatched Radio Flyer, rewatched uh, Sandlot, rewatched uh, the final season. And um, first, first question. And uh, if it sounds a little politically incorrect to some people, they just have to deal with it. Um, I remember the theatrical trailer for the movie Naked Gun, thirty-three and the third. And one of and one of the most hilarious things I ever saw. I started laughing out loud in the theater. I think I was the only one that did. At the end. The announcer comes in and gives a little quick disclaimer and says, "May play slightly funnier wet east of the Rockies." <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, and good luck with that today, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, I was wondering. Okay, you originally hail from not far from me. I I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and from what I understand, you uh, hail from Wilkes-Barre. I do. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's a difference uh, between? Filmmakers who um, have their uh, uh, roots in the East Coast and those who have their roots in the West Coast. Um, do you, uh, to me, and I could be wrong, it could just be me projecting on things because I want to believe this, but um, I look at filmmakers like Sylvester Stallone and Spike Lee and you and others who come from the East Coast, their films seem to have a little more blue-collar um, grittiness to them, for lack of a better term. Uh, do you think that's the case? Ah, oh, gosh, I've never been asked that before. Um I, you know, I suppose if you think about it, there's there's got to be some sort of uh, correlation there. I mean, I, I would think, mm-hmm. you know, more than East Coast or West Coast. Um, so I just watched Straight Out of Compton the other day. <laughs> I just loved, loved every frame of that movie. and uh, Which actually Dean has a small part in. Oh, really? Awesome. Capital Capitol Records guy. Oh, yeah. oh, really? He was the yeah. Capitol Records guy? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, that's awesome. 
But I mean, cool. I, look, I think it, more than an East Coast West Coast thing. I mean, you mentioned Spike and and Sylvester Stallone. On you know, as far, I don't know those guys personally, although Sly and I share an attorney. Um, you know, they came up, uh, you know, kind of hard knocks, I suspect. Mm -hmm. And so did I, very much so. So I think, you know, I, I, I suppose there's some sort of sense in which sensibility, you know, because, you know, I've lived in the East Coast, I've lived in the West Coast, and they're in, in, entirely different. They continue to be entirely different. There must be something there, although I don't, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't know how to to describe that. But I think more, it's like, you know, what was it like for you when you were a kid, you know, regardless of where you are? I mean, if it's hard knocks and, you know, Kansas city, Los Angeles, uh, where I did most of my childhood or, or, or New Jersey, you mm -hmm. know, hard knocks is hard knocks. Okay. You know, hmm, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. I guess versus industry babies in either New York or LA, if you're already born into the bubble. Yeah, that, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think you'd have to compare the two uh, regarding all things being equal. And I think that's a good example, industry babies. Um, you know, I don't, I'm sure somebody's done some sort of study on this, although <laughs> I'd have Probably. to Google it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, my, you know, my thing is, is, is I just, I mean, I've done a lot of family movies and, and stuff like that. But I mean, one thing, even in goofy little family comedies or whatever I strive for is to be, just be honest, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and kind of authentic or as authentic as I can be. And, uh, gosh, I, I don't know, man, that's a tough question. Let's, <laughs> let's come back to that one. Okay. 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 Sure. Um, okay. Excellent. Uh, okay. I'm going to jump ahead real quick and just mention, uh, we'll, we'll get to the final season uh, a little later down the line, but uh, listening to the audio commentary on the film and watching a couple of the behind the scenes documentaries again this weekend, it was kind of funny. There's a scene, a scene where Sean Astin is um, um, ripping his team a new one, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and, uh, and he uses the word ass, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it kind of mentioned how a few parents got a little upset about that. But uh, you guys had said, I mean, th these are not words that these people this age have not heard uh, regularly or said themselves regularly. And uh, I mean, it's not like they're going around dropping F-bombs mm -hmm, left and right, mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah, I definitely think that is a certain honesty that the audience, especially the young audience, really appreciates, which I think is one of the reasons your films kind of have a timeless quality to them, because... Uh, you know, regardless of how much technology may change, regardless of whether people have uh, books in their hands or Kindles in their hands, uh, humanity is still humanity. And people at a certain age can relate to other people at a certain age, regardless of what era it is. I, I absolutely, completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, there was always, there's always, um, you know, the directing part of the, the process being, you know, fortunately collaborative and many times mm -hmm. unfortunately necessarily collaborative. And I don't mean that when you're working with people that see eye to eye with you. I mean, you know, a lot of times when you're when you're forced to work with people that don't. There was okay. discussion about that and such and, and so on and this. And I'll give you a good example. Is in 2013, uh, I went on tour all over the United States for the 20th anniversary to the Sandlot. Uh, mm -hmm. My wife and I and our personal security agent Maverick, that's our giant German Shepherd. Which if you hear him <laughs> cool. barking in the background, he's just feeling the need to talk. Okay. Uh, and, That's not the beast, then, right? Oh, okay. oh no! Oh, oh, he's an intimidating, you know what? But no, <laughs> okay. he's not the beast. Uh, God bless the beast soul. 
But I mean, we, we went to, I drove about 33,000 miles, went to about 26, 27 Major League Baseball stadiums, pretty much sold out every wow. time. Uh, wow. And uh, well, I mean, the last one was the best because I shot the beginning and end of the Sandlot in Dodger Stadium, Chavez Rudin in LA, okay. right. which was one of the greatest things I ever got to do. I bought the stadium for a whole day, had it to myself. Wow. And uh, so we shot the beginning and end of the movie there. And uh, September 1st of 2013, um, 61,000 people showed up to watch the movie. And uh, it, was, it was incredible. And, and during that year, I, I met hundreds and literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people signed, you know, tens and tens and tens and thousands of autographs and all that. And in the middle of it in July, the Utah State Film Commission got a hold of me and said, hey, uh, can you come to an event that we're going to have celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Sandlot? Uh, and they, they rebuilt my sets on the exact, wow. the exact place where I shot that movie in, two, in 1992. And, uh, and they also put up a historical marker, a titanium and granite historical marker to yours truly. I was very humbled. And, <laughs> and the movie right outside, like sort of, you know, on an island in the middle of this uh, residential boulevard. There it is to this day. You can go and see it. And so they, the, the original land we shot, that is a long-winded story, but I'll get to the point. Uh, they, uh, it's about an acre and a half, let's say. And so they announced this, and you could buy tickets to it. They were going to have the local AAA baseball team there, tons of local Little League uh, things, some carnival stuff, food trucks, all this kind of thing. The uh, mayor of uh, Salt Lake, a senator and the governor came down. They put up a 120 foot blow up screen and we're going to show the movie and all that. So they sold out online in 11 minutes. Okay. A couple of months before. And that was about 1500 people on the day. 10,000 people showed up (laughs) from as far away as Alaska. And and even some people from overseas flew in because they wanted to go touch and be at this place for this movie uh-huh. that was so special to them. And uh, so we got there about 8, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. All the festivities and such. Nighttime comes, watch the movie. My And I actually proposed, she was my girlfriend at the time, I proposed to her on home plate at the Sam. Oh, awesome. Nice. I, I win. I totally win. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, we didn't leave there until about 6 a.m. when the sun was coming up, Sunday morning, Okay. Because the line, and I had a lot of the original cast members with me, and we all set up these tables inside the original Sandlot dugouts, and the line for autographs and stuff stretched all the way around the Sandlot, down the block, you know, three, four, five blocks away. And it was like that, and we stayed there until the last person came through. And of all those people, one father, young father with two young kids, maybe they're like four and six years old, they get up there and I... You know, I, I try to do my best. I shake hands. Thank you very much for coming. Each person, you're talking tens of thousands of people. And, uh, or at that point, this, this particular instance was probably five or seven, five, seven thousand. And he says, boy, we sure love this movie. And I'm going, very glad you do. I'm signing a poster for him, you know, and he's got a baseball. His kid's got a baseball. I'm signing that. And his little boy has a, a, uh, a baseball glove. Can you sign my baseball glove? Cool. And he says, boy, we sure love it. I'm going, very glad you, you, you did. Thank you very much. He goes, you know, except for that one word. <laughs> and I and I look at this guy, and I said, uh, "What word's that?" He goes, "Yeah, they they say it once in the uh, in the movie." And his two kids are there, and I say, "You mean shit?" Ha! And he looks at me like, "How could you have said that in front of my boys?" And I said, "Shit is not in 
the Sandlot once. It's in three times. And if that's <laughs> offensive to you, I'd be very glad to give you your money back and take those those autographs back. <laughs> the guy stares at me. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, that's not what I meant. I go, okay, cool. <laughs> Next. It's like, bro, you know, the word shit, you don't think your kids at four and six years old in, 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 in 2013, no matter how many locks you put on the Internet and your TV and this and that, I don't care what kind of school, you know, parochial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mormon, because they're very, very Mormon state, this, that, I don't care. They've heard it. Yeah. And I go, and first, and first and foremost, here's the thing. It's funny. okay and so he backed down real quick i i I don't suffer that kind of crap i i I really i really uh yeah i i don't like that kind of thing at all what is the best part about being back here oh i think the the best i mean it gives you chills coming back to the sandlot you know we spent three months of our life here and we have so many great memories and you know we get to see where they all took place where we all argued and fought and hugged and cried and it's it's awesome anybody ever grows up there are magical things impossible for adults that can still happen the reason these things are lost to the grown-up world is simple in the quick second between the age of 12 and your 13th birthday the great secrets to them all are replaced in your mind with thoughts of the opposite sex there are seven of these lost secret fascinations and abilities They are that animals can talk. (laughs) Your favorite blanket is woven from a fabric so mighty that once pulled over your head, it becomes an impenetrable force field. Great, great. Nothing is too heavy to lift with the aid of a cape. Monkey, you did it, you did it. Your hand held forefinger out and thumbs up actually fires bullets. Hurry! Jumping from any height with an umbrella is completely safe. Bobby! Bobby! Hey, you okay? I did it, Mike. I did it, I flew. Monsters exist. It can both be seen and done battle with. And the greatest, most special and regrettable loss of all, the ability to fly. Could you give us just a quick... um just a, a little bit of your background, how you came to be a writer. Um, uh, I was actually looking at um, looking at your website earlier, uh, flyingwagon.com. Yeah, and uh, you know, just 
trying to get a little bit of backstory on uh, David Mike. Uh, yeah, David Mickey Evans. I keep you know for all these years I kept saying David Mikey Evans. I don't I know, know why, but it's Mickey. You know, I don't know why. <laughs> you have a problem with the letter C? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can point out a lot. Look, I have a pretty good social media and, and web. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Presence. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I have a blog too. It's just my name, David Mickey Evans. Blog at blogspot.com. If you just do that, and there's tons and tons of posts from many years on there about all my movies and all that sort of thing. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's one of those apocryphal stories that, um, I, you know, the movie radio flyer is sort of my childhood, quote unquote, the light version. If you can imagine that I published actually the book that I wrote, uh, back in the day, I never published it. Um, but I based the script for radio flyer on it. Well, I got so many questions. Thousands and thousands. And to this day, the biggest blog post on my blog that gets the biggest hit, 65% of the people that come to my blog read it, is called What Happened to Bobby at the End of Radio Flyer. Of course. Right. Of course. So I got kind of, I got both sick of having to answer that question and like, you know, what am I doing? So I published the book. The book is different uh, than the movie, and it's what I intended. And it answers that question um, very, very clearly, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't have control of the directing of that movie and all that. But anyway, so that was sort of my, my childhood was not, was not great. In fact, it was really crappy. Um, and I, uh, you know, got out of high school, you know, and in those days it was like go to college. So I went to college. I studied at Loyola Marymount University in LA. And, uh, I studied a lot there. <laughs> I stayed, I stayed around there for six and a half years. Um, <laughs> and, and got, uh, two BAs, two MAs. And then eventually it was like, I either stay here and get a PhD or leave. And so I left and I starved the the starving artist thing for good Lord, three years, something like that. And, uh, I, well, you know, I I would write every day, uh, wrote a bunch of, you know, stupid horror movies that I thought would sell because that was the, you know, the days in which VHS and the video revolution was happening and everybody wanted horror films and none of them went anywhere. And, you know, I tried to join the Navy and uh, they wouldn't take me because of, uh, you know, when they asked me those questions about, have you ever used any of the following substances? I should have said, no. <laughs> 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 whoops. Uh, so that, you know, went out the window and uh you know, even if you had said that, though, I had I interviewed with the FBI, and I was telling the truth, and I said no, and they didn't believe me. Oh, <laughs> so really? Even if you told them, even if you yeah. said no, they might have yeah. told. How old are you? You're lying. You're lying. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> and you know, I tried everything, and I said, you know what? I'm gonna, um, I'm just gonna write a novel, and and I'm gonna send it out, and then if that doesn't work, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So I did, and I wrote this book that I based Radio Flyer on. It's called The King of Pacoima, and I. uh was satisfied with it, sent it out to 26, I believe 26 publishers got 26 rejection slips. Mm-hmm. And so some weird way I had met, because of a previous sort of horror script I had written, I met someone who introduced me to someone, and I met an entertainment attorney at a fairly good entertainment firm in Beverly Hills. And he read the book and said, you got to turn this into a screenplay. And I said, wow, okay. And that was like nobody in my entire genetic pool had ever had anything to do with the entertainment industry in any way. Um, unless you throw in one of the Comstock guys, you remember the Comstock Silverload in the 1800s and uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I found out he was a distant relative and uh, a drunk Irishman whom <laughs> the night that he actually hit the mother load, which after that went on to produce about $200 million in silver over the next decade, went in, got drunk, and sold it to some con man for a dollar. Jesus. <laughs> and then the next morning woke up and went, oh, God, and literally blew his own brains out. Okay, except for that guy, because that's pretty theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 okay. <laughs> Nobody else, right? So I didn't know anybody, and, you know, I... Anyway, so I got that this guy knew me, but, or from a friend of a friend, and he read the book. He's got to turn this into a screenplay. I go, okay, cool. So I've written a lot of screenplays all through college, and, and so I go, okay. So I took about three or four weeks, and I did it. I gave it to him, and he called me, and he said he, he cried the entire time. I said, well, is that a good sign? He goes, yeah, it's one of the best things I've ever read. I go, okay, thank you. And he goes, let me give it to this guy who is, you ready for this? A, a talent agent, uh, a literary agent at a child's talent agency. Like the Harry Gold agency that handled almost all child actors. And I was like, okay, thanks, I think. And uh, <laughs> so uh, that guy was a wonderful guy, who I know to this name, named Paul Kelmanson, whose father had been a director of commercials and such in the 50s and 60s, and who was a very good friend before he died of the director Richard Donner. Mm -hmm. So... Paul literally marched it in there and gave it to him. And he loved it, but at the same time gave the script Radio Flyer to a friend of his, a gym rat friend of his named Pete McAlevey, God rest his soul, who ran Michael Douglas's company at the time. Uh -huh. Okay. We never heard back from Pete. We heard back from Richard Donner's company who wanted to meet me. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. What? <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. 27 years old. You know, I have no... I, I have literally $5.40 to my name. That's how much I have. And I go, okay. And so, uh, you know, I don't have a car, so Paul helps me, drives me over there. We go into Richard Donner's office, and he goes, I'll never forget this. He goes, kid, you're a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> and I came to find out very quickly that Mr. Donner calls everybody kid. Everybody kid. Yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, he says, I'm going to do this movie. It's the greatest screenplay I've ever read, blah, blah, blah. As I'm literally sitting in his office, the phone rings, because that was the time that Sony had bought Columbia. Oh, wow. Okay? I was in Richard Donner's office on the Warner Brothers lot, you know, 200 yards away across Warner Brothers was offices for Sony Studios, right? Remember that whole division mm -hmm. that happened? Sure. And mm -hmm. Peter Goober and, and John Peters had taken over you know, they had walked across the lot off of uh, the Warner's lot and took over Columbia. And it was becoming Sony Pictures right at the time. Yeah. And I'm sitting in Donner's office and the phone rings and he picks it up. What? He goes, you're going to be fucking kidding me. He goes, kid, it's for you. And I, what? <laughs> no, wait, no, no, no. Nobody, I'm nobody. I know who knows I'm here. Nobody knows I'm here. Right. And so he gives me the phone. I go, hello. And, uh, there's this voice, there's a really raspy voice like this. And, and <laughs> this, this lady says, what the fuck are you doing in Donner's office? Get over here right now. We're going to buy this movie and you're going to direct it. It was Amy. Because <laughs> she was, you know, Goober Peters' uh, development exec at the time. And it somehow got a hold of the script. And John Peters, uh, she told John Peters, you got to do this movie. And Peters got a copy of the movie, I found out later. And uh, had it with him on a plane 
and, and didn't read it and called her back and said, I don't care what you have to do. Just get this movie. We're making this movie. At a subsequent meeting with Mr. Peters over his, over a bridge, over his koi fish lake, I swear to you, <laughs> biggest koi fish ever said, he goes, you wrote my life. You wrote my life. I wow. Go, cool. You're welcome. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you can't kill the dog. I go, well, the dog dies, dude. And I'm, tw- remember guys, I'm 27. I don't know shit. Yeah. And he goes, you kill the dog. I won't make this fucking movie. I go, okay, don't make the fucking movie. <laughs> wow. And, um, he looks at me like he's going to punch me, but I'm thinking, I, I, can, I think I could take him, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not I'll get a few licks in. And he goes, mm-hmm. all right, we're not going to talk about that right now. I'm buying the goddamn script. going to make the movie. And he, and he like rushes away from me. And uh, seven days later, I was a millionaire. So that's the story. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Weird, right? Fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by fire, dude. And then yeah. <laughs> It's been documented a million times. They agreed to let me direct it. They had no intention of following through and letting me direct it. They gave me eight days in the chair, and literally at the absolute 24th hour of the eighth day, Michael Douglas shows up and says, I'm going to let you go. I knew it was going to happen, but that day was a, yeah, it was, it was tough to swallow, you know. <clears throat> so I uh, said to Mr. Uh, Douglas, that's terrific. Can I... Uh, can I get a ride home? <laughs> he looks at me. I go, you know, can a teamster give me a ride home? Absolutely, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It was the last thing he was expecting, you know. So the guy gives me a ride home. I got home, uh, went into the house, uh, probably had a beer, walked into my office, sat down, and I swear to Almighty God, I opened up a new script file and typed The Boys of Summer, Fade In, cool. San Fernando Valley, 1962. That was the original title of The Sandlot. And the rest is history. Awesome. Crazy story, huh? That's a pretty good week. Yeah. I thought we supposed to feel pretty bland after that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very good week. Yeah, bad. You know, I mean, you know, and it taught me a valuable lesson, man. I mean, I grew a real thick elephant hide that day, you know, Um, and it was not good. I knew it looked okay. I, I have one more chance. Everybody in Hollywood gets a second chance. Nobody gets a third. Okay. Hmm. And my second chance was uh, a script, The Sandlot, and uh, it went out, and I got offers just to buy the script alone from three to three and a half, three and a half times what I was paid for the script for Radio Flyer. That was really hard to turn down, but they didn't want me to direct it because everyone at Columbia, ergo Sony, especially mm-hmm. the head of production, who I think is dead now, and I, you know what, guys? I'm not bitter. I'm just telling the truth. You know? Yeah, that's cool. No. <laughs> guy in the world. No. I have the greatest career in the world. I get to do anything I want. Uh-huh. I write what I want to write. I take the gigs I want to take, and, and it's all. But, you know, since, yeah. you know, you want, hey, man, I got sense memory shit going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he badmouthed me. I mean, like slander and libel, written and spoken all over Hollywood. And uh, – Everybody was willing to pay me several million dollars for the Sandlot script, but no one was willing to let me direct it. And I had specifically written it as a lower budget movie contained within just a few locations, you know, so that I knew with a little bit of money I could get it done. And one guy, one guy in Hollywood uh, gave me that chance. And uh, he ran Island World. Okay, It was Mark Berg. 
who I know to this day and is a great guy. He said, meet me at this restaurant. I meet him at the restaurant. He holds the script. And he goes, this is the best script I've ever read. I go, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And he goes, and you want to direct it? I go, yeah. I go, I'm going to direct it. He goes, Has any, I know you've got a lot of offers. I go, i got a lot of offers and it's a lot of money. He goes, I'll let you direct it. And I make sure that you finish it. I go, why? He goes, because I've talked to every single person that you worked with on Radio Flyer, and every one of them says you couldn't direct your way out of a bag. And I said, yeah. And he goes, they can't all be right. Okay, fair enough. And, and he gave me the shot, and there you go. So I, I've always owed him a, deep, uh, a debt of gratitude. to rejects and a uh, fat kid, Rodriguez. Shut your mouth, Phillips. Would you say crap face? I said you shouldn't even be allowed to touch a baseball. Except for Rodriguez, you're all an insult to the game. Come on! We'll take you on right here, right now! Come on! We plan a real diamond porter. You ain't good enough to lick the dirt off our cleats. Watch it, jerk. Shut up, idiot. Moron! Scab eater. Butt sniffer. Puss licker. Smeller. <laughs> you eat dog crap for breakfast, geek. You mixed your weeds with your mama's toe jam. Yeah! You bob for apples in the toilet, and you like it. You play ball like a girl. One of the things I uh, think about the Sandlot in particular, pretty much most of your films in general, is that um, they all kind of have bittersweet endings. For example, uh, the Sandlot, you know, it's a very memorable summer. Uh, by the end of the movie, and I love how the Beast is, we see him as this deliberately over-the-top monster until they finally meet him, and he's a regular dog. He's a big-ass mastiff. He's a big-ass dog, but he's a regular dog. And when they finally meet uh, Mr. Myrtle, you know, right. you kind of get the feeling that even though everything is cool at the end of the movie, from then on, the whole world is going to be a little smaller now. It's not going to be as magical. It's not going to be as scary. Um, they, they've kind of lost a certain childhood innocence and a certain magic. I mean, they still hold on to it, but in the end, the ending narration, they kind of go their separate ways, you know, and, uh, and they become adults. And uh, I kind of see that, obviously. You know, the very debatable end of Radio Fire, the film, is kind of like that. Uh, the final season, even in its title, is letting you know ahead of time this is going to have something of a bittersweet ending. Right. Uh, is that something that's conscious? Or, again, are you just dipping into that well of life experience and life itself can be bittersweet? I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and uh, life is bittersweet. It's neither, you know, it's neither uh, sweet all the time nor sour all the time. It's... Uh, it is bittersweet. I mean, you know, listen, I, uh, my, one of my sons just had a very, very close, uh, friend of his commit suicide. Uh, and I've been having these conversations with him over the last week about, look, you know, these are the things that happen in life. It's not always, uh, you know, apple pie and sunshine, man. Um, and, uh, I said, you, you have to understand that she's gone, but she's not gone. <laughs> I go, because when all of us leave and we all leave, mm -hmm. uh, we leave only one thing behind. It's not our good works. It's not houses we've built, empires we've conquered. It's only memories. 
We're memories, okay? And those are very real physical things, and they're in your brain. She lives on as a physical essence inside your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the most universal, I mean, I don't want to get into a bunch of Jungian universal subconscious stuff, but I mean, mm-hmm. the deal is, this is, I, my life has been a, a very, very big example of that sort of moment. Leaving the, and we all know what that is. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. several, but mostly it's one that we can always reach back and go to. You know, the quick second between when you went from being a child to an adolescent or sort of having to step into that pre-adult world. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that to me is the most important moment for any human being that's ever lived or ever will live. And I, it just is, you know. And mine uh, was particularly uh, difficult because of, you know, this really terrible stepfather. And, you know, we we were little Caucasian uh, kids, my little brother and I, who lived in the northeastern San Fernando Valley in the early 70s. And, mm-hmm. you know, look, you know, it's like when people say, you don't know what racism is. Really? You don't know where I grew up, you know? <laughs> right, right. right? <laughs> Dude, I got the shit kicked out of me on the way to school, at school, on the way home from school, and then the old man would start in. You know, so, you know, I, I, you know, if it was today, I'd probably blow my brains out. But, you know, the big man saw fit to give me some broad shoulders. So, Mm. but the thing is, I think it's the most fertile ground. I I just love that, that the fertility of that human experience, that that great moment there. I wrote about this. It's in the book. I think it's in the movie too, Radio Flyer, about the seven great fascinations and abilities, right? Yes. And and uh, it's those things that necessarily have to be left behind and um yeah so that really 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 holds my interest i I, to this day it does and you know i don't i guess i could sort of do a treatise on why but i pretty much don't question it you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you're absolutely right a lot of my stuff is bittersweet uh it's kind of funny too because um well i'm glad you said you don't want to get into the jungian kind of thing because I might do that for one quick second. <laughs> no, go Sorry. ahead. Huge, huge CJ fan. Go for it. Okay. But while um but while rewatching the films, I couldn't help but think of okay, especially in the Sandlot. Uh by the time we get to you know, by the time they um for lack of a better term, conquer the beast and they get to his stash of baseballs, I'm like, he's the dragon. <laughs> He's the dragon, and that's the gold that the dragon has been hoarding. <laughs> you are exactly right. That is one thousand percent correct. Yep. You know, and and just rewatching all the films, I couldn't help but think of the films of Francois Truffaut, um, Small Change, and mm-hmm. especially especially yeah. and especially the Four Hundred Blows. Yeah, you know, the no whole... question. That's, that's one of the most influential movies I've ever seen. You, man, you're. Do you really need me on this interview? <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> right, happy, you. dude. You got me. You know, all right, me and Jim are going to finish this without you. <laughs> yeah. You're you're absolutely correct. Remember what Benny says. Now Benny's the oldest one. He's the leader of these guys. Uh-huh. He's the beneficent one. He's the one that's inclusive. And I'll tell you the story about how this came to be in a minute. But you're absolutely right. The beast is the dragon, and the baseballs are the gold. In the sense that it's every childhood experience every great warm summer morning and summer afternoon right where you leave the house in the morning and you don't have to come back until night at least that's you know when i was a kid some right you know every great wonderful magical imaginative experience that any kid has ever had 
and then they had to go on to the next one. Each one of those is one of those baseballs. Okay? <laughs> and it's as if Benny has found the dragon's lair, like mm-hmm. Bilbo, if you will, with Schmog. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, I found the treasure, right? I'll never have to work another day in my life, is what we'd say if we were adults. Right, But right. if we were kids, and you saw it, you'd say what Benny said, now I can play forever. Play forever, yeah. And that's <laughs> why it's in there, man. You're exactly right. Cool, yeah. very cool. And isn't that what we really want to do? Right? Still to this day, yeah. Like, dude, we work, <laughs> yeah. we work so we can do what? So we can go have a recreational experience, which is re- recreate. I want to go recreate. I want to stand up, paddleboard. I want to surf. I want to fish. I want to this. What is that right. word? It's re- Create. Create. That's what it is. I want to recreate myself. I want to recreate the feeling, at least, if not the experience as close as I can, of those great carefree days when I was a child. I mean, I know I'm not every child in the world, probably, probably most, don't have that kind of opportunity. Yay, America. But uh, especially in this day and age, good Lord. Ooh. Oh, God. We talk about that later. But Don't even get me started. Okay? It's like, yeah, talking about bitterness. Good Lord. <laughs> Anyway, you're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to ask a, a quick question about, about uh, Radio Flyer. That, I was uh, working in a movie theater when that came out, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was it, it. We probably showed it for a week before I had a shift off where I can go see it, but I just knew from the first day that I had to because ushers, you know, we were all supposed to go around and check theaters and make sure no one's smoking or got their feet up all on the right. seats or nothing. And, and, and cause, you know, cause back then you could still sometimes get away <laughs> smoking. <laughs> I remember. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, and, um, they were lingering a little longer and a little longer and a little longer in Radio Flyer. And then, like, they just kept coming out and it didn't matter how old they were or what, you know, some of us were high school, some of us were post-college age. Uh, all different racial backgrounds. This is in Boston, so you know, a lot of college kids from around the country. Didn't matter what part of the country you grew up in, everybody came out trying to make sure no one else saw them crying. Oh, wow. Like, everybody came out and kind of ducked into the men's room or ducked into the next theater, just mm-hmm. like, don't talk to me now. I got something in my eye. Everyone was just so wrecked by that thing, and it became this sort of galvanizing, everybody thought I was the only one. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah. uh, and 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 we also started here. I think it was in Premier Magazine, maybe at the time, that mentioned something about, you know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, some of the the development process that that stru- struck that thing. And uh, we, it, it actually, I mean, before any of us even knew an awful lot about movies, other than that we liked them, when we first even started hearing those rumors, it kind of automatically turned us into you know anti studio, anti Hollywood wonks to begin with. Because why the hell would you even tamper with this thing? And we just kept wondering, like, what else did they, what else did they deny us? Okay. Did, you know, well, you're exactly right. You know, because I'll tell you, I mean, you, you know, I, obviously I'm a Writers Guild of America uh, union member, okay? And anytime uh, you as a guild member are given a script by a studio production company or whatever that has been written by another guild member, a guild brother or sister, okay? And you are asked to rewrite it. You have an absolute union obligation to call that writer, even if if you don't take the gig, and and tell them, hey, I, they've given me your script and they've asked me if I would rewrite it. So I'm just letting you know, mm-hmm. brother, sister, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, War- Warner Brothers gave it, and I'm not going to mention their names, but if I did, you would know who they are. They're they're to this day they're very they're 
were the top 20 screenwriters in the world, no, no doubt. Okay. They gave it to three of them. All three of them called me and said, I've been given your script. They've asked me to rewrite you. I'm turning them down. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So it was, uh, you know, flattering. And, and I was, you know, happy about that. But then, of course, it was left to me to do all of these studio notes and make all of these changes. And, you know, at one point, Stuart Baird, the editor, was literally mm. writing narration. <laughs> okay? And I'm like, you've got to be effing kidding me. So I, I, you know, look, again, I was 27. It was a baptism by fire. There was little I could do about it. I tried to preserve as much of the original as I could. But, I mean, you know, I'll send you guys a, a copy of, uh, of the book. And uh, I would be grateful if you would read it because all of those questions are answered in the end of this book. Oh, good. Wow. Okay? okay. And they always had been. And in the original script, they were as well. It was not, as Mr. Donner, whom I respect and owe a debt of gratitude to, uh, it was not a fucking Rorschach test. Mm-hmm. Okay? And what she actually said on all the TV shows and all of them, a Rorschach test. I audience can make up their own mind. No, dude! It, you know, it's about child abuse. Let's right. not make it a Rorschach test. You know? It's like if a kid is getting beaten up, it isn't, well, how would you interpret that? No! It's like take action, make a stand, you know? Anyway, that was my point with the, with the ending, the way it is in the book, the original way. We ain't the biggest or the fastest, even sometimes the best, but no one's got the fundamentals down better than our boys. But every little league coach within 50 miles of here is an ex-Norway player. It's like having our own minor league feeder system. Norway baseball tradition as rich as Iowa soil. We grow ball players here like corn. Sneak is big time honored to welcome internationally renowned composer and cellist Martin Tillman. How goes it, man? I'm very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well as well. Great to talk to you finally. You too. I guess first up, uh, how did you become involved in the music world? Your your music covers so broad a spectrum of musical genres it's not just classical it's not just jazz it's not just rock it's 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 just a little bit of everything it's world music it's a little bit of everything how did you become so involved in such a wide range of musical styles i think it had to do with you know me growing up in switzerland um on a farm and my parents had a boarding school but also in the summer they had a music camp which we opened our house to about 30 kids every summer and so i was growing up since the age of zero surrounded by cellos and harps and pianos and flutes and drums and so that was a really uh, you know very inspiring time to, to grow up in and it just seemed to be that's my world and it's always seemed to me that that's where I will be one day. And the reason why I got involved in so many styles is I'm not very focused. <laughs> so I just... <laughs> yeah. 
I love to try things and I always pretend to be someone else. And okay. uh, that's a great part uh, of, of being able to switch. And I also believe when you play different styles, you keep being fresh. Um, yes. And also, um, yeah, so, um, so I grew up in Switzerland, um, eventually finished a music school, a conservatory for cello. Uh, and then I got a scholarship to come over to the USC School of Music in Los Angeles in, in 1988. And I always knew I needed to end up in LA um, because I had this dream. I wanted to play with some of the musicians I've seen on album covers when I was still in Switzerland. Um, some of my favorite musicians at the time were um, Chicago and Toto and Shaka Khan. Oh, yeah. Um, that whole scene and Pink Floyd, of course, but they weren't mm -hmm. LA, but still. Um, so I came here with 23, 24 years old, uh, finished a master's in music for cello, and then I don't totally abandoned my, my music career as a student and became a receptionist. <laughs> So I worked for four years in a recording studio as a runner, uh, taking care of a cup, cups of coffee and, and uh, assisting with cleaning the cables. Uh, and I got to meet a great producer named Mark Foster, uh, David, oh, wow. David Foster, David Foster yes. Umberto Catica, who was at the nice. time really one of the best engineers. They worked with everyone from Barbara Streisand to Chicago. Yeah. And that led me to get to play on Chicago album number 17, Explain It To My Heart, which probably was the worst session I've ever done as a cello player. Because I was... Really? Yeah, I just didn't know what to do. You know, like there was no sheets of music and it was in a, in a very hard key to play in. But still, I made it. Uh, it got used, and a couple of weeks later, I met a band because of the studio and started playing, uh, and one thing led to another. Now, uh, two cuts from your album Eastern Twin ended up in the film Ali, and uh, is that your first uh, first album, Eastern Twin? It sort of is. Yeah, it's it's sort of the the first conceptualized. Um, album which uh, me and Tom Bedwick, my, my musical partner for years now, we're still actually working together, uh, came up with and we always felt we needed to do something uh, uh, sort of pushing the, the, the limits of what's out there music-wise. So we were very early into trance music and ambient trance music and world music and I always had this vision we should incorporate more of the classical world into that scene. Mm -hmm. And th so that, that how the album came about and started recording. And then we're very lucky we met um, uh, an engineer and he connected us to a label at the time, which was headed by Pat Leonard, who was uh, Madonna's uh, producer and co-writer. Mm -hmm. And then the album, sadly, never saw the light of day because uh, the, the company collapsed mm -hmm. before it happened. But it still ended up in uh, Ali. A couple of tracks, yes. Uh, Odessa and Ceremony? Ceremony. 
exactly. Uh, what was your reaction to uh, to that? It was uh, was amazing. I mean, um, Michael heard it in, in 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 LA. I was at the time in Switzerland, and he said, "You have to come over." Uh, you basically totally changed the, the the movie with your two tracks and. So I got mm. actually I got to compose some more tracks with Tom for the movie because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it yeah, it sort of helped us to be on a little map some of some sorts, you know, like mm-hmm. people recognized what I did and what Tom did, and it led to many uh, new contacts and, and new projects, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. I knew that you um, were the featured cello soloist on a number of scores. It wasn't until recently, I would say the past month or so, that I realized how many. Uh, <laughs> just in the past few weeks, I've been pulling uh, CDs off the shelves, and it's like, oh my God, Martin Tillman is on this one too, and this one too, and this one too. Uh, Dark Knight, Black Rain, B- Black Hawk. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Dark Knight, uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, 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 just so many. Uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. The, uh, the, the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, on and on and on and on. Uh, how did that, um, was that a direct result of the Eastern Twin uh, tracks from Ali or? No, it's, um, it, well, it sort of was at the same time uh, because like around 94, I worked in sort of in the television show uh, circles in LA with mm-hmm. different composers and okay. some of the composers knew Hans Zimmer. Okay. And hence, uh, while I was on the road with the band Air Supply in, in Australia, he called me and said, I really would love to work with you. I heard some things about you and you may be a good fit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I came over to L.A. and we did uh, Face Off. Okay, okay. Which was our first movie and we just clicked and mm-hmm. we both had no idea. I didn't ever really play on a, on a movie, and he didn't know what an electric cello is, so he just <laughs> left for three weeks. Like, Good luck, and we have no fucking idea what we're doing. Right, right, right. <laughs> but sometimes... And engineers and, and everybody else are like, what is this instrument? And it sort of started snowballing more and more. And then we did Mission Impossible, I think it was Mission Impossible 2 or 3, with a Chinese uh, director. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from that, yeah, it just became, I became sort of a part of remote control for about 16 years. And mm-hmm. that that led to, I mean, me playing on, on the scores with Hans led to many other scores with various uh, other composers. And mm-hmm. like John Daphne, we did The Passion, where I did the nice. opening of it. And yeah, it was a fun, fun time. And uh, now I just felt it's time for me to switch a little gear and and instead of being behind the scenes i actually would like to do a live project and and go out and play music and and see you know have reaction from people rather than just a wall of microphones Mm -hmm. right 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 so uh, and uh could you tell us about the origins of uh and the um inspiration behind superhuman well superhuman came really out of uh, a, a very bleak and dark moment in my life and my wife's life, uh, Eva, who got diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis about eight years ago. And sort of two, three years into it, I, I knew it just will be around us for a while. And it got really dark and sad. And um, I also, at the time, and previous to that, I always sort of 
did music, but it was on the darker side. It was more menacing or it was more drama-like. And she asked me one day, uh, could you write me a happy song for my birthday? And I said, mm-hmm. I have no idea what a happy song is. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote her Ava Happy Song 1.2. Hmm. And she said, oh, that's good. I think you can do it. And I <laughs> forgot about it uh, for a couple of years. And about five years ago, I, I knew I wanted to start something which is positive, which helps me and the, my energy, and also something I can make Eva proud. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did uh, embark on the first few tracks for what is now called Superhuman. And I thought, I want to have the listener listening to it and having a great energy from it it has to be up so all my melodies i'm trying to go up and not down literally physically and it's all about grooves and and everything has to be just really optimistic and highly visual and i also thought this is my chance to do anything i want so that's why it's so wide in the musical styles i go from edm all the way to cinematic music Mm -hmm. all the way to uh psychedelic rock nice nice and uh what are the plans for superhuman uh in in the not too distant future well the plan is uh i've been signed with uh, extreme sony and they're gonna put out a record uh as as a as a production record Mm -hmm. so people can license it for television or film Mm -hmm. And I am going to release it um, digitally. And as well, I'm planning on doing shows uh, starting in L.A. and building up uh, momentum this year. Um, Because the vision I have for the uh, album eventually is uh, performing it with with the full-on orchestra. Or or like my vision is 33 cellists playing behind the band. Wow. And have a... a, um, ballerina like my favorite ballerina is misty copeland mm-hmm. and uh, an asian break dancer <laughs> to to interface between the music and uh, this the audience and and the big light show because i'm i love pink floyd right right <laughs> please area so yeah it's just mm-hmm. it's i sort of want to create an event and push the limits uh stylistically also for the stage and uh, um so right now I'm looking for sponsorship to see if uh, someone, which we actually are in contact already, I can't talk about right. it. But um, yeah, so to bring, bring it on the road, and I would imagine to play also in Europe, where in my country they are very interested uh, to, to perform it with orchestra in, in about a year. Well, man, thank you for doing this. I... Thank you so much for reaching out. Oh, thank you for uh, responding. All, okay. all the best. To you. Okay, you too. Bye. Take care. Hear and learn more of Martin Tillman's musical magic at imdb at hanszimmer.com and on SoundCloud. Once again, Martin Tillman with Amadeus on the Nile.
Okay, it's one and done, forever. South Clay is 31 and eight. The eight games they lost were when Reed Ellis wasn't in the rotation. He's pitching today. We all know he's being scouted by pro teams, but one player doesn't win a baseball game. You can if he throws 92 miles an hour, coach. We win by playing Norway baseball. 80% of this game is defense. We don't let anything get out of the infield, and we wait. Sooner or later, they'll make a mistake. Every player who's ever worn a Norway uniform is out there with you today. And think about this. No other Iowa high school baseball dynasty has ever won a state championship in their final season. We're playing for everyone who knows that Norway is a great place to come home to. And no matter what happens today, this time next year, the jerseys you're wearing will be polishing chrome in Madison High School. So ask yourself one question. How do you want to be remembered? Obviously, everyone knows Radio Flyer. Everyone sure. knows The Sandlot. Um, I would say, in as I love those two films, I would say the most pleasant surprise for me was a couple of years ago, when I was doing a little channel surfing on a Saturday afternoon, and on one of the stations, I happened upon this movie called The Final Season. Mm -hmm. and, and it was just beginning. And, you know, uh, it, first of all, what caught my attention, um, film geek that I am, mm -hmm. uh, just fantastic cinematography in the opening sequence. Oh, um, where yeah, Danny Stoloff did that. Yeah, so, where mm -hmm. the... So good. Where, where just the, the, the town becomes a living character, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And then you have this wonderful score by, by Nathan Wang. And it's yeah. just sort of part Copeland-esque, part almost like a, a Renaissance kind of thing going on. And it's like, I'm like, what, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. you know, it just grabbed my attention from the get-go. And, and I'm reading the opening credits, and then it gets to, you know, directed by David Mickey Evans. It's like, how, how the hell have I not heard of this film? So, so I watched it, and I fell in love with it, and, um, and had to see it again. And first of all, <clears throat> anybody who can um, 
get Powers Booth in their movie deserve to go to heaven just because of that, okay? Okay? <laughs> you know, Booth is, is just serious Dude, shit. I, and I right? gotta tell you this. He is the coolest guy you will ever hang out with. Honest <laughs> I believe to God. It. I, you know, that guy it was like always an hour early, always left an hour late, right there, no matter what I asked of him. I mean, I remember telling him one time, he delivers this line, and I and he's in the dugout with the with the uh, Sean Astor character, yeah. And I said, all right, look, this isn't working. Powers, I need you to sell this line for me, dude. And you are going to tell me that this is the corniest line you've ever heard in your life. He goes, all right, just tell me what it is. And I go, I need you to say because you know one of the the uh, coaches upon which the story is based actually said this. I go. We grow ball players here. Wait, like corn? And I go, yeah. and, and I look at him, and he looks at me, he goes, okay, give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. No, and he just didn't complain, and he sold it, man. He sold it, man, oh, yeah. I was so grateful, you know. And it really is like that there. I spent, you know, my gosh, I've done two films in Iowa. I've got great friends in Iowa. I love Iowa. The people of Iowa, they work like animals. They're incredible place and it's a beautiful beautiful place in the spring summer and fall i don't want to be in there in the winter uh <laughs> but it is like there and then and the coach ed thomas story i told you about at the beginning of the conversation that takes place in parkersburg iowa and actually the the man who had the life rights to van scoy and kent stock uh, the final season uh tony wilson uh my friend and producer i'm working with him again on the on the ed thomas story so oh, nice comes around but they've called and i'm, I'm not patting myself on the back. I mean, you can Google it. Um, the Sandlot consistently wins the greatest baseball movie of all time and the best summer movie ever made. Hmm. Interesting. And, okay. Yeah. Bleacher Seats, ESPN, uh, Sports right. Illustrated. I mean, you know, just Google okay. it. Cool. The final season, for those that have seen it, has been called the greatest baseball movie never seen. I, yeah. Wow. I think that's, that's a perfect, perfect, perfect Get explanation. It. Yeah. And the reason is that the match, there were unfortunately 11, count them, 11 producers on that movie. Mm-hmm. And you're talking, you know, guys, come on, it's like a $4 million movie, four and a half, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got a, a little teeny tiny uh, theatrical release for, oh my gosh, two weeks, something like that. Uh-huh. Which is ridiculous because it was never marketed, but that it was sold uh, to Yari, who had an output deal with Sony. But Yari was in bankruptcy at the time, so they didn't give a shit. Right? You know, they just threw it out there in the at the end of the chain and didn't. They spent nothing on, so nobody knew about it. Nobody knows yeah. about it to this day. You know, which uh-huh. is a shame. Well, hopefully we can reverse some of that because. Uh, <clears throat> oh, by the way, um, during the course of of, of the show, mm-hmm. um, we'll be playing little snippets, like just little clips uh, cool. here and there. Very from, you know, uh, just to get people interested, to make people want to um, go and find it on Amazon or, or rent it or however. Oh, I would or, love it. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, 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 just, it's a wonderful film. And um, it's kind of funny because it's one of those films where, I mean, a lot of critics did care for it. Uh, like you said, Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Lyons had some good stuff to say oh, about it. Oh, yeah, he was very complimentary, Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, uh, from what I understand, it opened at Tribeca. Um, it did. Uh, it brought uh, it down, man. We got a we got a standing ovation. It was awesome. Cool. Yeah. Nice. You know, but it's kind of funny because when you go to um 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 somewhere like 
Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, mm-hmm. and and you see how you have I can't remember exactly how how they break them up, but um, you have the critics' m- mean percentage rating, mm-hmm. and then you have the viewers' mean percentage rating, mm-hmm. and this is one of those films that the viewers overwhelmingly love, mm-hmm. but but I think some critics because it is so old fashioned, it is so so middle American, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, I think some people were almost ashamed to admit that they that they dug it. <laughs> you know what? You might be right. You know, this is, gets back to the beginning of uh, the podcast here, guys. It's like, where are all those critics? They're in L.A. and New York. Mm. Okay? and Mostly. I mean, the ones right. that have the biggest pull and all that. Uh-huh. But I got to tell you, listen, I, you know, uh, I've done, I don't know how many drafts of this Coach Ed Thomas story, and I have access to hundreds of hours of uh, video about him, and I, I, I uh, and, and interviews of you know hundreds of people that knew him and all that and you know the essence and the way uh, that the man spoke is in the script mm. and he was very very old fashioned and he was very middle American he's very Iowan you know mm-hmm. and that's the way it is um, it is it is still the majority of the way people are the majority of people in the United States are still like that I agree okay mm-hmm. yeah. but it, you're just not seeing that anywhere in media. Nowhere, you know, and mm-hmm. certainly not in movies. I mean, yeah, there is know. a certain sort of quote unquote modern cynicism. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, uh, I hate yeah, to be the one that blames the Internet for everything, too. But I think also, I mean, in the past 10 years since we all, you know, I mean, remember, remember 15, 20, 25 years ago, whenever there was a live news broadcast, what would there be? There'd be half a dozen schmucks standing behind the newscast. Going, oh, I'm going to be on TV tonight, right? Yep. No one does it anymore because we can all be on TV any minute we want. And, and right. I, think, I, think, I, think it's, I think now that we're all stars of our own universe, um, we all think our universe is cooler than everybody else's. And that I mean that I could I could probably babble about that for another twenty minutes, but but I think that I think that's I think there's something. I mean, if you want to talk about a loss of innocence, I think that's something we've all lost. There is that you know we we, we all we're all immediately uh, the leading man or leading woman in in a story that we're just waiting for everybody else to figure out is the greatest thing they'll ever see. Well, it used to be in order to be famous, you had to do something great. Exactly. In order, right. In order to be infamous, you had to do something bad. Right. Today. You can be famous for doing any fucking thing. Or nothing at all. Or nothing at all. You can can hold your cat and let it play the keyboard. Exactly. Grumpy cat and the keyboard and balloon boy and, uh, you know, or... or Balance a champagne glass on your ass. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. You know. (laughs) What do you do? Nothing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'll go with the the South Park guys on this. That person's a hobbit, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Full fucking hobbit. Yeah. Um, Kanye going, wait a minute, hang on one second, baby. What, tell me again why you're not a hobbit. <laughs> right, right, right. God, I love that episode. <laughs> There's so much truth in South Park. We really Listen, okay. I, is it, in my estimation, guys, I mean, there's no question they're geniuses. Yeah. And in my, and I, have you guys seen the Book of Mormon, the, the play? Mm-hmm. Actually, I haven't seen it yet, no. Dude. Uh, yeah. And this podcast is done. Get tickets. Go, <laughs> to go see, see it. it. Both y'all <laughs> go together. Okay, and take each an extra pair of adult diapers because you're going to piss your pants laughing. It's the funniest effing thing I've ever seen. Honestly, I cannot tell you. You hear other people say this, funniest movie yeah. all time, or play of all time. I'm here to tell you. It's all true. It's all <laughs> Wow. True. All right. Okay. 
That, yeah, uh, that, they're the finest satirists uh, since Oscar Wilde. You know, you might be right about. Yeah, you might be right about that. So, <laughs> yeah. This high school football game has all the trappings of the average all-American hometown game. The band, the fans, and the drive to dominate on the gridiron. But make no mistake, this is no ordinary game, in part because of what the hometown team has survived in the last two seasons. Last year, an F5 tornado leveled the high school and left the football field in ruins. The district rebuilt, and last week, Applington Parkersburg students started classes in their brand new high school. This past June, another tragedy. Head football coach Ed Thomas was working in the high school weight room when he was shot and killed by former player Mark Becker. Many questions still surround Thomas's slaying, including a clear motive and the suspect's mental stability. Well, in conclusion, I guess, before we finish up, we've got to talk about the Coach Ed Thomas story, which you mentioned earlier. A couple of things about it, I guess, brings us full circle uh, thematically. Uh, first, as most folks know you for and from, the baseball stories, and, and I'm not familiar with the Ed Thomas story apart from the little bit you mentioned thus far, uh, this one, a true life biography, takes place in the world of high school football. And as far as keeping things real, which we talked about earlier, you mentioned how Coach Ed Thomas was in real life and how he spoke in real life, which kind of brings us back to a couple of, say, minor league, you know, full circle again, a couple of, say, minor league four-letter words in something like The Sandlot or The Final Season. Uh, what's different in the Ed Thomas story and what was there, is there, about it which sparked your interest in the first place? I watched a really, really, I think it's a really, really underrated, it, it did quite well considering the budget and stuff movie uh, online, I hadn't seen it in the theaters, uh, called uh, McFarlane USA. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, yeah, no. Man, I gotta tell you, uh, what's her name, Nikki Caro, the director that did uh, Whale Rider. Whale Rider, did, right? Did, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta tell you, man, that is, uh, I mean, it's a pretty standard, inspirational High school, sports coach, movie, underdogs, no chance, end up winning, all that. I get it. I got to tell you, man, three or four times they got me. Um, tears are coming down my mm -hmm. eyes. And Costner does just a rem remarkably wonderful job. Uh, and everybody in that movie just did, God, it was just stellar, you know? Wow. And uh, there's not a single off-color word in that movie. Not one, you know? So, but it was appropriate. It was absolutely appropriate that right. there not be, you know, for that for, for, for that for film, that yeah. film and that story, and especially the way the writers told that story. And I think they did a really, really good. It's an exceptionally well written piece. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, de I dealt with that. I just finished the script. I'm going to go make this picture. The story of Coach Ed Thomas. He was a, probably the greatest high school football coach that ever lived. A very, mm -hmm. very stalwart Christian guy. Walk the walk, talk the talk. But, you know, but walk the walk like big time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, 37 years, there goes my There he is. <laughs> I'll start going and stuff. Uh, he, uh, 33 years at the same high school, 37 years coaching and all that. In, uh, uh, and they, they like to joke and they called his football field in this little town of 2,000 people the Sacred Acre because mm -hmm. he took such good care of it such good care of it that colleges would send their groundskeeping crews there to this little town to look and ask him, how do you do this? I mean, he never let anybody touch it, blah, blah, blah. 
And in 2008, he finally got it perfect. After 33 years, it was perfect. <laughs> and a month later, as they had started weight training for the upcoming football season, an EF5 tornado went oh. through, destroyed the entire high school, wow. uh, killed 10 people, blew out 100 houses, 220. I just absolutely wiped the place off the planet Earth. And uh, he endeavored to uh, make sure that his seniors were able to play their home opener in September of that year. Problem was, it had taken uh, initial construction two and a half years to build the athletic areas and complex, and he had 100 days to redo it. And he did it. Okay? Wow. Wow. And uh, they went through. They didn't win the state championship there, but they came damn close. And uh, after that, he uh, made a promise to his uh, wife that he was going to retire. He couldn't bear it. She let him out of the promise. He finally went on a family vacation, first one ever in his life to Hawaii, he came back, and in June of the following year, out of nowhere, a former student came in and put seven bullets in his head. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very faith-based story. Very, uh, it's about forgiveness, and, and his family went on to uh, establish a, a foundation in his name and all that. And then in 2010, the family uh, won the SP Courage Award. <laughs> that is a movie in which there is not a single curse word. Okay. okay? Because, and I interviewed everyone that I could possibly find that ever knew Ed, hundreds of people, and they said, we heard him say, damn, once. <laughs> and that was it. So wow. that is a movie in which it's absolutely inappropriate. You know, I'm not going to be taking license and having him cork right. off the team and this and that and the other thing. Um, you know, but I just took another gig uh, doing, believe it or not, another Little League movie. Hmm. Uh it was a story of uh, the San Clemente uh, Little League team in 2012 that didn't have a coach. Of all the teams in the league, one team didn't have a coach. So these two 14-year-old kids, baseball players for uh, San Clemente High, said, hey, we'll do it. And everybody thought they were going to fail miserably, and they ended up winning the state championship. Well, that's cool. <laughs> they took it all away, which kind of goes back to something you guys said a little earlier. It's like, Why? Because they were their peers, mm. they spoke to their, their teammates with the same age, you know, like mm -hmm. friends and peers. But in that one, I guarantee you there's going to be a few off-color words. Got it. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> it's California. They're 14 years old. It's 2012. <laughs> Come on. <clears throat> Seriously. Well, dude, uh, no, th this has been awesome. And, um, okay, just one, one quick thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, can we can end this on. Um, have, um, Jim and I, we uh, always do a review of a film. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you seen um, Spectre? No, I haven't seen it yet. No. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, just, okay. Just Here's the deal. Uh, so, uh, just so you guys know, I live on a in an undisclosed location on an <laughs> island off the coast of Florida. Okay. Uh -huh. um, I, I moved here five or six years ago because uh, you know L.A. can. Yeah. With all due respect to my friends in L.A., I you know. Just prefer not to live there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. uh, you say four oh five to me, and I it's like I <laughs> convulsions. Um, so it takes me. It takes a bit of effort for me to go to my uh, oh. local, which is gotcha. about ten miles away off the island, over a couple of bridges and stuff. And I Damn. think it's playing there. I went there uh -huh. two a month ago, too much to see Woodlawn, the okay. football movie, uh -huh. Uh -huh. which. Um, God love their effort, but oh my God, what a nah. screenwriting fucking disaster. Ugh. Okay. Um, which is reflected. Uh, there he goes again. There you go. He, you know? he agrees. Yeah. I feel so safe. Um, um, 
but anyway, so yeah, we're going to go see it uh, before it gets out of theaters because that's one of those things you got to have that theater experience, you know? Absolutely. You know, I, I don't care how good your home theater is. You no, know, there's. Did you guys see it? Do you dig it? Actually, I did. Yeah, and and uh, okay, not I n- never get, I never do spoilers. I I dug it. Okay. I mean, um, it's a little lighter than the past couple of films, and I love the the heavy Bond films because me they too. remind me more of the Fleming novels. Hundred percent. Um, so they, uh, but I I kind of get the impression, and this is a good thing, that um, you know, the past couple of films, people who love the novels love the past few films. Mm-hmm. Um. And, but people who grew up mainly on the films, the Roger Moore, the Pierce Brosnan films, I've heard a lot of people complain about how dark and pretentious that you know they felt the new films were. This seems like a conscious effort to try to bring them into the fold too. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. it's a li- it's a little lighter. I would say it, um, for lack of a better term, it's probably a little more fun than okay, the other films. Right. You know, well, fair uh, yeah, it doesn't branch into Roger Moore territory. No, you know, it, it still takes itself seriously. But it's a little lighter, and I kind of appreciated the little shift in gears. I think it was a welcome respite, you know, and, um, you know, kind of like I think in any series it goes on for any length of time, whether it's like Star Trek films, like the first Star Trek film is a straight-ahead, hardcore sci-fi film. Uh, Wrath of Khan uh-huh. is kind of an adventure film. Uh-huh. The Voyage Home is sort of a social satire, uh-huh. you know. Um, and I like how they switched up the kind of film every now and then. And I think they kind of, they're they doing that here with Spectre, which I appreciated. So, Rega- yeah. Regarding the Star Trek things, except the one with the whales. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Go ahead, what? Yeah, I had a uh, writing teacher, him and his partner wrote that. I thought, what a, uh. Oh, really? <laughs> I, got, I got a bone to pick with that guy. Dave, it's 20 oh. years later. Get over it. You know? Uh, wow. Okay. You know, I'm glad uh, to hear you say that, though. Look, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in those things, too. You know, mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, it, it, at the time I was watching Bond movies when I was a kid, it was like, who's Roger Moore? I don't care. It's got a cool Paul McCartney song, you know? Wow. Right, exactly, yeah. Care. And uh-huh. it was like, oh, he jumped the boat and they did all this cool shit. And now, obviously, in retrospect, after I have you know, grown up, read all the uh, Fleming books and all, I'm like, right. dude, he was not that. He yeah, was he's... not Pierce Brosnan. He was, uh, he was uh, Sean Connery. And the next best thing is Daniel Craig. He was a murdering yeah. son of a bitch. Exactly. Uh, you, yeah, and refers to him as a blunt instrument there in the novel. Yes, absolutely. But I, he is. I do. I'm very glad that you, that you think they've sort of, you know, give a little bit, split the difference sort of thing. Yeah. Because, you know, look, I mean, you know, Fleming was writing post-Cold you know, Cold War, post-WW2 right. and all that. I mean, it made sense. Now, uh, maybe, you know, not so much. Right. Yeah. You know, so like, uh, I don't want to see it continue down that road, but right. I think just a nice little shift of tone uh, serves, serves the series uh, very well. Well, let me, uh, you know, this, you know, I've got another five seconds. Yeah, yeah, what sure. What do you think about the suggestion I know what you're gonna. I know what you're gonna. Just asking, dude. Go ahead. How do you pronounce his name? Eldris. Oh, Idris Idris Elba. Elba. Idris Elba. Yeah. What do you think about Hmm. that? You know, um, it's funny. Um, I think character-wise, he fits the bill. Um, I he he's a little too, for lack of a better term, muscular for me. Oh, he uh, um, yeah, he's a yeah. He yeah. does seem a little impervious compared to yeah. Craig right. seems small enough that he can still be tossed around, but Idris Elba would not make me not buy a ticket. As a matter of fact, I'd probably still be there just as early as yeah. I would short short answer yes. I would still see that movie. Yeah, well, I would. I, yeah. There is no question that I would go see that movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just in the, in the in the sense of you know you hear this uproar about wait what James Bond isn't black. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, I've read all the books. 
Mm-hmm. It never says he's white. Right. Right, exactly. It's number one. Uh, and number two, what year is it? Right. 2015. Right. Exactly. When was the first book written? Because Unless James fucking right. Bond is 125 years old right now. <laughs> right. Okay? So, please. <laughs> exactly. It's a movie. You know? Right. You got, yeah, big time. Huh? I was just going to say, the only, the only thing I'd want to real quick toss out about Spectre, and I'm kind of, you're a little lucky that you haven't seen it yet. If, mm-hmm. if you have the time, watch the other three Craig movies first. Okay. I, I, All I right. planned on doing that, and I didn't do it, and I'm kicking myself because it just feels like there's, I mean, I spotted plenty, but I feel like there's even more. Fun little touches that I would have caught if I'd seen them more recently. But then um, I'm definitely gonna I'm definitely gonna have a, a little marathon here for sure before I, I, I thank you for telling me that. Yeah. My my uh, one of my other sons. Oh, just so you know, uh, one of the interesting uh, fun factoids about the final season mm-hmm. is the uh, Bat Boy Owen. Mm-hmm. That's my son. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. cool. And, who is now 20 years old and a uh, well, I actually can't tell you what he does, but he's in the U.S. <laughs> Army. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, FBI, if you're listening, I said nothing. Right. <laughs> uh, what was it? Oh, oh, and one of my other sons, um, who was actually in the Sandlot too, uh, is just coming unglued about the new Star Wars. Sweet. And his yeah. friends went. Uh, the main, he lives with his mom in, in Burbank, and they went and stood in line for four hours to get all of their tickets for the first show. Woo. Man, and they got him, you know. And we've been talking about that. And he went back and uh, with all his buddies and had a marathon the other day and watched every Star Wars in numerical order. Cool. Nice. I'm planning on doing that too. I am doing exactly <laughs> the same thing. I hope you got yeah. Perfect. Hell yeah. Got to awesome. do. Awesome. All right. Well, David, thanks so much for doing this, man. Oh, thank you guys very much for having me, man. I'm very, very grateful. Anytime, no problem whatsoever. I uh, I'm at your disposal, really. Cool, man. All right. All right, guys. All right. Well, take care. See you later. Bye. All right. Do this. <laughs> what a perfect closeout. Yeah. <laughs> that was cool. That was great. That was very cool. Well, that'll about do it for this edition of the Movie Sneak, and a damn good one it was. Thanks to our illustrious musical guest, Martin Tillman, and to the podcast troupe, We Found Microphones. And a huge thank you to writer-director David Mickey Evans himself. We'll keep you posted here on any updates concerning David's upcoming film on Coach Ed Thomas. We're really looking forward to that one. And you can follow him on his official blog page, davidmickeyevansblog.blogspot.com. That's all one word, davidmickeyevansblog.blogspot.com. Until next time, I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of thelunchmovie.com. Thank you for joining us here at the Movie Sneak. And tonight we're taking you out on a slightly different note. With the 2015 New York Yankees recreating a classic scene from the Sandlot. Outtakes and all. See you next time up there in those hidden cheap seats. They're just a few weeks from opening day, but it looks like the New York Yankees are getting a little restless at spring training camp. They took some time off from ground balls to pay homage to the baseball classic, The Sandlot. You mean to tell me you went home and swiped the ball signed by Babe Ruth and brought it out here and actually played with it? And actually play with it? And actually play with it? 
Yeah, yeah, but I was gonna bring it back. All right, do it again. Try not to look at the camera in between. So you're just doing a straight. Okay, so okay. Yeah, yeah, but I was gonna bring it back. All right, one more time. I'm not an actor, man. Yeah, that's me. Right if you want to do the squeak voice, a little squeaky on the voice. The Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, King of Crash, the Great Bambino. Ah, oh, I don't feel so good. <laughs> <laughs>